Let's thank him for that in prayer. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you that you are a faithful God. When we have been unfaithful to you, you remain faithful to us. We thank you for that. We thank you, O God, that you're a merciful God, and your mercies are new to us each morning. They're never exhausted. And for this, we thank you. We thank you, O God, that you are our provider. You watch over us. You meet our needs. You are our healer. For these things, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for the Lord Jesus Christ who gave his life that we might have salvation. What can we say to this indescribable gift? We can only say thank you, Lord, and offer our lives to you as living sacrifices. We love you, we thank you. We pray that you would cause our our hearts and our minds to be attentive to your word now. You have a message to speak to us. And our thanksgiving to you would be that we might receive it, welcome it, respond to it, apply it to our lives. Help us to do that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. The story of human history is a history of inequities the widening gaps between the haves and the have-nots, injustice, abuse, racial tension, social tension, religious discrimination. Injustice screams in the marketplace, in every marketplace in our world today. Commemorative days are nice, but injustice requires more than a holiday. It requires action. Getting to peace from injustice is God work. It can't be done by people, really. It's a big deal. Our mission is to call the haters of God to put down their sinful weapons of mass destruction and seek the mercy of God. From God's vantage point, peace with God isn't covered by an occasional Christmas or Easter holiday or a once in a while visit to church. Today we want to pursue the question, how can there be peace? Our world is desperately in need of an answer to that question. Would you turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 9, please? Today, we're going to look at seeking an answer to the most important question ever. How can there be peace with God? This particular section of Scripture was the best of Jehu, where he was carrying out the work of God calling those who were hating on God to lay down their sinful weapons. It appeared that the army of Israel was ready for a change, ready for a regime change. They were tired of getting beaten down all the time by enemy 
armies. It grows, it grows tired quickly. They needed a king change. And so we pick up the story. It's in the middle of what we read last week, but we didn't have time to cover. It's a hit, there's a hit and run anointing and commissioning by a young prophet who commissions Jehu to become king of Israel and to avenge the, the bloodthirsty sinfulness of the current kings. And there was a rally around him. Let's go, Jehu. Let's get this done. And he rides like a madman into Jezreel to take care of business, where Joram, the king of Israel, was convalescing, having been wounded in Ramoth-Gilead. So that's where we pick up the story. And I want you to think about, as, as we read through, there's, there's a, a phrase that's repeated multiple times. You're, you're going to see it. It really... It's not a mystery to understand the theme of this section of Scripture by this phrase. It has everything to do with what extent God will go to make peace between himself and humanity. So let's start in chapter 9, verse 14. So Jehu, son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now Joram and all Israel had been defending Ramoth-Gilead against Hazael, king of Aram. But King Joram had returned to Jezreel to recover from the wounds the Arameans had inflicted on him in the battle with Hazael, king of Aram. Jehu said, if this is the way you feel, in other words, if you're behind me, if you're with me, don't let anyone slip out of the city to go and tell the news to Jezreel. Then he got into his chariot and rode to Jezreel because Joram was resting there and Ahaziah, king of Judah, had gone down to see him. When the lookout standing on the tower in Jezreel saw Jehu's troops approaching, he called out, I see some troops coming. Get a horseman, Joram ordered. Send him to meet them and ask, do you come in peace? The horseman rode off to meet Jehu and said, this is what the king says. Do you come in peace? What do you have to do with peace? Jehu replied, fall in behind me. The lookout reported, the messenger has reached him, but he, hasn't, he isn't coming back. So the king sent out a second horseman. When he came to them, he said, this is what the king says. Do you come in peace? Jehu replied, what do you have to do with peace? Fall in behind me. The lookout reported, he has reached them, but he isn't coming back either. And the driving is like that of Jehu, son of Nimshi. He drives like a madman. Hitch up my chariot, Joram ordered. When it was hitched up, Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, rode out, each in his own chariot, to meet Jehu. They met him at the plot of ground that had belonged to Neboth, the Jezreelite. When Joram saw Jehu, he asked, Have you come in peace, Jehu? How can there be peace? Jehu replied, as long as all the idolatry and witchcraft of your mother Jezebel abound. Joram turned about and fled, calling out to Ahaziah, treachery, Ahaziah. Then Jehu drew his bow and shot Joram between the shoulders. The arrow pierced his heart and he slumped down in his chariot. 
Jehu said to Bidkar, his chariot officer, pick him up and throw him on the field that belonged to Naboth the Jezreelite. Remember how you and I were riding together in chariots behind Ahab, his father, when the Lord made this prophecy about him? Yesterday I saw the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, and I will surely make you pay for it on this plot of ground, declares the Lord. Now then, pick him up and throw him on that plot in accordance with the word of the Lord. When Ahaziah, king of Judah, saw what had happened, he fled up the road to Beth Hagan. Jehu chased him, shouting, kill him too. They wounded him in his chariot on the way up to Gur near Iblim, but he escaped to Megiddo and died there. His servants took him by chariot to Jerusalem and buried him with his fathers in his tomb in the city of David. In the 11th year of Joram, son of Ahab, Ahaziah had become king of Judah. When Jehu went to Jez- then Jehu went to Jezreel. When Jezebel heard about it, she painted her eyes, arranged her hair, and looked out of a window. As Jehu entered the gate, she asked, Have you come in peace, Zimri, you murderer of your master? He looked up at the window and called out, Who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked down at him. Throw her down, Jehu said. So they threw her down, and some of her blood splattered the wall and the horses as he trampled her underfoot. Jehu went in and ate and drank. Take care of that cursed woman, he said, and bury her, for she was a king's daughter. But when they went out to bury her, they found nothing except her skull, her feet, and her hands. They went back and told Jehu, who said, this is the word of the Lord, that he spoke through his servant Elijah the Tishbite. On the plot of ground at Jezreel, dogs will devour Jezebel's flesh. Jezebel's body will be like refuse on the ground in the plot at Jezreel, so that no one will be able to say, this is Jezebel. This is the word of God to us today. So to what extent will God go to make peace? If you notice, five times in the text, the question is asked, is it peace, Jehu. Or another way of putting it, is it well? Is, are things well? And Jehu answers, how can things be well? How can there be peace? How can there be peace while, while the land is filled with idolatry and sorcery? How? The idolatry and sorcery of your mother Jezebel, how can there be peace? What we learn in this text is that sin left grows like cancer. The Omri dynasty, of which Jezebel is a part. Ahab, Ahab's father's name was Omri. He was a king, handed down the kingdom to Ahab. The Omri dynasty was another sorry chapter in the history of Israel, history of God's people, who were misled by leadership and pretty much willing to accept being misled. Many joined in with the treacheries of the sin of the Omri dynasty, the idolatries, trading God for other gods. When they knew full well that the command upon the people of God is thou shalt have no other gods. 
sorcery and witchcraft, worshiping superstition, when they knew they were to trust in the Lord with all of their hearts and lean not in their own understanding, in all their ways, they were to acknowledge God and He would direct their paths. They knew these things, yet a majority turned to follow the pagan gods of the land. Sin left grows like cancer. We learned, of course, earlier in this story, there were 850 false prophets allowed to influence the people of God. 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah. We also find out that there were 7,000 people who had not bowed their knees to the Baal, nor had they kissed the pagan gods of the land. And for us, that sounds like a pretty decent number, 7,000 who remained faithful to God until you do a little bit of research on how many people were actually in the kingdom. Historians and archaeologists suggest that there was about 200,000 people in the regime of the king of Israel. If you do the math, 200,000 versus 7,000 remained faithful about 3%. Interestingly, uh, as I was researching this this week, I happened to get a phone call from the provincial director of church planting for our movement. And he asked me, hey, Rick, how many Bible-believing churches do you think there are in Oshawa? And, and how many actual people do you think are in Oshawa that serve Jesus Christ with their hearts? I did some quick work and came up with a number between four and 5,000 people out of the 165,000 people in Oshawa serve the living Christ. It just so happens that that math is about 3%. Nothing seems to change. The vast majority of people turn their back on Almighty God. A very small percentage, three out of 100, three out of every 100 Remain faithful to Jesus Christ. I hope you're one of those. I hope you're one of those who, who loves the Lord Jesus. God keeps careful record of the faithful, you know. He was able to encourage Elijah by saying, there's 7,000 of you. God knows every single one of those who are faithful in Oshawa or Whitby or Clarington, or wherever you happen to be from. God keeps a record of those who are faithful to him. The first kind of observation I would make based on all of that is that abounding sin in your life precludes peace with God or man. How can there be peace when sin abounds, there cannot be. I also notice not only does sin left grow, sin left on its own grows like cancer, but sin separates. Sin separates people. It can't possibly make peace. When you turn from God, it alienates you and thrusts you out of community. People steeped in sin have no peace 
nor do they have peace with others. The effects of personal sin lead to human brutality. If we learn anything throughout these texts that we've been studying, those who oppose someone who's living in sin or get in the way of people satisfying the full expression of their sin become casualties themselves. That's why Naboth is mentioned in this text so many times. The reminder to God's people, listen, what, look what happens when sin abounds. There are brutal casualties. Naboth, a God-fearing man, a, a, a God-worshiping man, a man who loved the word of God, mercilessly slaughtered because he happened to own land where the king wanted. The servants of the prophets, the servant prophets, the, 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 uh, God points out that, that the, his servants, the prophets, and, and all the Lord's servants were being slaughtered by the Ahab dynasty. Because that's what sin does. Sin brutalizes people. The reason we have so much unrest, racial unrest, social unrest, religious unrest, political unrest, it's all because of sin, all of it. It's all because of rejecting God, of turning our backs on God. And it brutalizes people, it abuses people. And God keeps careful notes during times like that and during times like this as to who is gracious, who is caring, who is compassionate, who is dependent on the Lord, who is obedient to the commands of God, versus who is hard, who is uncaring, who is cancel happy, who is disobedient, who is proud. God knows. And he keeps careful notes. God has had enough of this chapter of history. And it's time for a cleanse, which is what this story is all about, cleansing Israel of gross sin. God is patient and long-suffering, but there is a time there's always a time for God to finally say, enough. My spirit will not always tarry with man. And so he appoints an army commander to be the judge on his behalf. His name is Jehu. This is God avenging the wronged. Justice is underway. That's what we've been studying here. And, and this, the nature of God to deal with Sin that destroys and brutalizes people is the same God who watches over us today. In fact, this story that we read today from God's Word is, is like a movie trailer of, of a future feature that is yet to happen. The, the, the final, it's, the, it, it's, a, it's a harbinger of the final purging of sin from this world. God will eventually purge all of the world of the unregenerate, those who do not and are not at peace with God. There's a warning here for all of us. 
A warning for, for, for each of us to take seriously the answer to the question, are you at peace with God? So what about you today? Are there sins against God that are still outstanding that you haven't taken care of? Are you living in disobedience to the commands of Christ, ignoring his word? Have all kinds of other things crept into your life that are more important than God? That's no different than the idolatries and the witchcraft for which God is judging in this story. Other things that are taking your time, your talents, your treasure, instead of your full loyalty to God? If so, you're not at peace with God. We learn in this story, and note this carefully, that where peace is broken, only justice can repair. The route from injustice to peace must run through justice. There's an interesting phrase, and a sobering phrase really, that shows up in this story. It's in verse 26, where God has pronounced judgment for the brutality against Naboth and his family. He says, I will surely make you pay for it. We hear the phrase used in social unrest and racial unrest all around us. No justice, no peace. It's a truism. Injustice in this world cannot get to peace without first justice. And God has set out to bring justice to this world because he's just. And that's what we're to learn and understand from these actions with which God has taken. In Isaiah 57 verse 21, states there, this, there is no peace, says my God, to the wicked. Wickedness must be dealt with. We pick up the story, we continue along, and the two kings are taken care of by Jehu. But Jezebel is still left. And if you noticed, Jezebel's name was the was implied as the mother of all sin in the land. It was her who brought idolatry and witchcraft among the people. And you would think, you know, here's, the, here's Jezebel who's now heard that her son has been judged and punished. Her grandson has now been judged and punished with capital punishment. And now it would appear her days are numbered. Jehu comes riding into Jezreel. 
And, you know, you, as, we, as I've told you before, you look at all of these texts and you ask the question, why did God choose to preserve this kind of detail about a woman putting on makeup, fixing her hair, looking out the window? Why do we need all those details? Jezebel knows that the avenger of God is on his way. She knows that the sentence on her life is capital punishment. She knows that her days on this earth are numbered. And yet she takes on the posture of total defiance. See, here's what we should have seen. We should have seen a woman clothe herself in sackcloth and put ashes on her head and bow her knees to the Lord of glory and ask for mercy. Here's what we learn. In the final of our observations this morning, then, we have a big question to ask of all of us. There are two possible responses to the offer of peace. Repentance or defiance. Only two. There's only two responses to God's offer of peace. Defiance or repentance. And Jezebel represents those in the face of certain death who will still defy the living God to his face. She black powders eyeshadow all over herself, gussies up her hair, puts on clothing, leans out the window. And I think she says it like this because she's old. Have you come in peace, Zimri? You murderer of your master, wagging her bony finger. Not only does she defiantly fix her face and her hair and her clothing, she taunts her executioner, by calling him Zimri. You have to do a little digging to understand what she's, how she's dissing him here. See, Zimri was an unlawful usurper of the kingdom at the time just before her father-in-law, Omri, became king. Zimri was a commander of the army of Israel who led a coup d'etat, unlawful coup d'etat, God did not commission him, to overthrow Elah, the evil king. And he lasted, Zimri lasted as king for seven days before he committed suicide. And she's literally saying to him, you are Zimri. Zimri came as an unlawful usurper 
And how did it go for him, Jehu? He lasted seven days. You'd think, you know, that, that people who'd witnessed the almighty power of God would, would recognize that in their final hours and reach out in repentance to him. What had she witnessed? Well, she'd seen the, the two widows taken care of miraculously by God. She had witnessed the withholding of rain by Almighty God. She had witnessed two famines that spanned over 10 years at the hands of Almighty God. She had witnessed the, the showdown on Mount Carmel where all of the prophets of Baal were defeated by the fire from heaven. She had witnessed the great victories in battle by the hand of God. She had witnessed great healings by God. And here on her last hours of opportunity for repentance, she waggles her bony finger at God's avenger and insults God, literally by claiming his servant was an unlawful usurper of the kingdom. She gets thrown out of the window and trampled as had been prophesied. And by the time by the time Jehu was finished his lunch she no longer had a body. There was a skull, two feet. And it says in the Hebrew, the palms of her hands. I take it her fingers were gone. So that she was unrecognizable. And this powerful queen who wagged her finger at Almighty God was to be remembered no more the total opposite of what happens to those who repent and make peace with God. We have a new name written in heaven forever. So let me ask you, how can there be peace with God? Injustice, the great sin we have committed against God by being disloyal to him, all of us, we've all sinned against God. That's why the Bible says the wages of sin is death. All have sinned. All have come short of the glory of God. All of us are guilty of injustice toward Almighty God. All of us. How do we get to peace with God? We can only get there through justice. And what's the justice? Listen to this. In Colossians 1, 19 to 20. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, meaning Jesus Christ, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. God's requirement of justice is death. 
And God has sentenced and sentenced his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die for us so that justice could happen. He, Jesus Christ, paid in full our penalty. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We urge you. The same statement is, is brought forth today. We urge you, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him, Jesus Christ, who, knew, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, so that we might become the perfect righteousness of God. God took care of justice by paying the price himself on the cross of Calvary. God was merciful to us who deserve to die by granting us salvation through Jesus Christ, by giving to us the gift of righteousness so that as God looks at us, he no longer sees us at war with him, but at peace with him because our sins are forgiven and we are seen by God as perfect in Christ. This, this, is, this is a phenomenal act of love and mercy on God's behalf. He allowed Christ to be our payment so that we wouldn't have to pay. So what about you this morning? What about you in here? What about you online? Are you living with a low-grade defiance toward God? Are you living in unbelief? Are you living without peace with God? Do you know when your final hour will come? And it will be required of you to either be at peace with God and to enjoy his fellowship for all of eternity or for it to be too late because you've wagged your finger at him until the final hour and there is no opportunity for peace. This is the opportunity right now be reconciled to God now through Jesus Christ in a few moments we're going to celebrate the Lord's table together there is no greater symbol of at being at peace with God than the Lord's table it is for those who are at peace with God through Jesus Christ.
Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Jesus promised to give us his peace. Psalm 29, 11 says, the Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. I implore you today, choose peace with God today. Our Father, won't you stand with me as we pray? Our Father, we stand here in your presence with humble hearts and thankful hearts that Jesus Christ has made peace with God possible. There are only two responses, Lord, to that. Defiance or repentance. We can either continue to defy the opportunity for peace with God and remain in our sins and remain in the wrath of God or we can repent, we can turn from our sinful lives to forgiven lives in Jesus Christ and experience peace with God forever and eternal life. Lord, I pray that that every heart engaged in this ministry today, in this message today, would turn, repent, seek mercy, and receive the salvation of God through Jesus Christ this day, I pray. For Christ's sake, amen. Perhaps one of the most sought-after environments in all of the world is peace. Everybody wants to find peace. They don't know how. And it's impossible for humans to manufacture peace with one another in the absence of justice. And justice requires a payment in full. And that justice could only be paid by Jesus Christ, the perfect, righteous Son of God. And so here we are today. Justice requires payment in full. And Jesus is our justification. He is our substitute by the mercy of God. Reconciliation with God requires forgiveness. We can be forgiven through Jesus Christ because of what he's done for us. So I call on you, I implore you today, the same as the Apostle Paul did, be reconciled to God today. If you are online and God is speaking to you, then I invite you to welcome Jesus Christ into your life. He died for your sins. Turn from your, the way you've been living and turn to the living Christ. Ask him for forgiveness and you will be forgiven. And contact us. We'd love to talk to you more about how to begin your life following Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Or if anyone is in this room, is in the same place, one of our pastors would love to meet you here after the service that we might talk to you and show you from God's word how you can have peace with God. It's Jesus Christ. It's that simple and yet that profound. Let's stand for prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this amazing day of thanksgiving. Being... uh, awarded the indescribable gift of Jesus Christ and then invited to the Lord's table 
to commemorate, to remember, to celebrate our peace with God now and forevermore. So, Father, we thank you for peace with you. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone hearing this message, anyone in this room online who is yet to experience the peace of God through Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, I pray today, Lord, by your grace, by your mercy, because of your justice, and your, that you would draw those hearts to yourself for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.